Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of euphaz. His body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words and while I heard the sound of his words I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. In this chapter, Daniel receives the fourth vision. For those of you who have been following along in our study of Daniel, there have been three visions. By the way, in the last chapter, Daniel began an extended time of fasting and praying. Why was he fasting and praying? You'll remember that in his study of the scrolls of Jeremiah, he learned that the captivity was about to come to an end and that the children of Israel would return to the land in which they belong and that God's Messiah was on his way. And so since Daniel learned that God was going to restore his people to their land, and then embark on a mission to restore and rebuild first the altar and then the temple, Daniel prays that God's people will repent of their sin. And they'll embark on this courageous journey of restoration. And it becomes a type and a picture for all of the Christians. Remember, your journey doesn't begin with just simply accepting Christ as your Savior. Your world is certainly changed and transformed when you experience forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life, but it's only the beginning of the journey. There is still the walk of the believer, and there's still the warfare of the believer. And so in these chapters, we are reminded that there is a walk for us and that there is an invisible, supernatural place there are spirit beings who 
promote the plan of God and there are spirit beings that oppose and resist God and God's people. And so in this chapter, we're given a glimpse into that unseen world. We begin to understand the reality of a supernatural conflict in this supernatural realm. And of course the war is taking place and the combatants are the forces of God and his agents and the forces of Satan and his evil agents. And the prize is the souls of men and women. You're the prize. You're what's being fought over. And what's being fought for. And so this chapter begins with a vexation of spirit. Daniel is deeply troubled in verses 1 through 4. And he'll continue with an angelic visitation in verses 5. And it will continue all the way to verse 21. And once again the angel will come to instruct Daniel about God's plans and Israel's future in verse 14. And this angelic being will be hindered obstructed by supernatural creatures. One of the beings will be referred to as the Prince of Persia and later the Prince of Greece. But God has sent a helper to turn the tide, to make a difference, to turn the tide in the favor of Daniel and his people. And the angel Michael will appear in verse 13. And then he'll appear again, apparently, in verse 21. And so we look at the prophet's distress. Look at verse 1. We're going to dive right in. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. It's the Babylonian name that was given to him as they were trying to erase his past and give him a new name and a new identity and a new future. The text says the message was true, but the anointed or the appointed time was long, and he understood the message, and he had understanding of the vision. The fourth vision takes place in the third year of the reign of Cyrus. Now, each of the four visions are dated which becomes so very important and so very helpful in our understanding of the unfolding events of the book of Daniel. The first and the third years of Belshazzar are given, and the first and the third years of Cyrus are given. If, as scholars suspect, that Belshazzar, remember, is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and Darius the Mede is another name for Cyrus, or perhaps Darius is appointed at exactly the same time that Cyrus experiences ascendancy to the Persian throne, we're able to have a fairly accurate chronology. So the third year of the ascendancy of Cyrus is between 536-535 B.C., so now, why are these dates important? Because it's going to help us understand and discern 
a stable chronology of the unfolding visions, it also helps us understand that at this point, Daniel is very, very old. Now, again, if you're in your mid-80s, you're the same age as Daniel in this passage. You're vintage. Daniel is taken at 13 or 14 years of age. He has spent 70 years in captivity. So again, why does Daniel insert his Babylonian name? I'm going to suggest to you that in some sense, this particular verse is to draw attention to the reader that whoever we've been talking about from chapter 1 chapter 3, chapter 6, all the way forward, that this is the same Daniel. We're supposed to be secure in the knowledge that this is the Daniel who's been a part of and participated in the previous visions. But I'm going to suggest something else, that it might mean something else. It might mean that though the Jews have been offered a right to return by the king, the Persian king Cyrus, that some people remain captive. And so again, I want you to think this through. According to the book of Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 2, Cyrus has already allowed some almost 50,000 Jewish people to return to the Jewish homeland, to go to Jerusalem, to start building cities and farms and plantations. And all of this is so very, very important in our understanding of the text. 70 years has gone by. Two groups of people. Some have remained. Most have remained. In pure numbers, it's only a drop in the bucket of those people who have elected to return to the land. Now, we also understand that this is probably either immediately before or immediately after the events that take place with Daniel in the lion's den. I want you to think about that for just a moment. For those of you who are familiar with the story that we studied in Daniel chapter 6, verses 6 through 28. And again, since Cyrus conquered Babylon, solidifies his rule, he issues the decree for the Jews to return. 50,000 take advantage under the leadership of Zerubbabel in Ezra chapter 1 and 2. So when Daniel receives this vision again... The exiles are already there. They've begun rebuilding their homes, cultivating business, tending farms. They have begun to create a makeshift altar. They've, they're trying to provide the foundations for a temple. And I'm going to suggest to you that as a court official, Daniel likely has access to all of the reports of the progress that's being made, but he also has access to all of the information for the reasons why the people have elected to remain. And so he says that the vision is extraordinary and true in verse 1. Emet is the Hebrew word. So our translation reflects the King James where it says the message was true but the appointed time was 
long. The way the King James and the New King James translates the text seems problematic to me. Because again, when you read the text, the translation is the Hebrew word sabah, which is a word that means army or war or warfare or service involved in warfare. So it's caused some translators to translate this a great conflict, New American Standard. This concerns a great conflict, the New Revised Standard. The Hebrew text literally and simply reads, and a great war or conflict with the verb to be supplied. So the phrase could be a reference to the earthly conflicts that are about to unfold at the end of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11, all the way to chapter 12. The reason why all of this becomes important is because if it is a reference to an earthly conflict, it makes sense since the Jewish people are returning to the land and they're going to be in a perpetual state of opposition and hardship and conflict from their neighbors to the north and their neighbors to the south. But if it means that there is an invisible conflict, a supernatural conflict, that also makes sense in light of the context that we're reading as a visitation takes place and the conflicts and the terms of the conflict begin to unroll, un unravel. And since both interpretations serve the context, whether we're talking about the physical opposition that's going to take place or the supernatural opposition that's going to take place, we, I think, in honesty and integrity can look at this text and think about the opposition that we ourselves experience in the plan of God, in the purposes of God. Let me be very clear here. The Old Testament is committed to the theme of the Messiah's coming. The New Testament's theme is committed to believe the Messiah. In your life, everything around your life before you come to Christ revolves around receiving Christ. Jesus must come into your life. He must show up and you have to believe him. But your coming to Christ is just the beginning of the story. It's not the end of the story. God has a plan for you and a purpose for you. As you walk into that plan and purpose, you also can expect opposition. Now, Having said all of that, Daniel writes literally, he understood the message. And understanding came to him in the vision. Again, it seems this understanding comes as a result of the intercession, the prayer in verse 12, the fasting in verse 3. And the prophet is once again praying He's praying for the plight of his people. And again, remember in the previous three visions, Daniel has learned a lot about the unfolding kingdom. 
Remember, he already understands that Babylon must decrease and that Persia must increase. He already knows that Babylon's empire is going to give way to Persia and Persia's empire is going to give way to the Greek empire. He already knows because of the head of gold and the chest of silver. He has some understanding about from the book of Jeremiah, the return of the land and the reconstitution of the temple. He understands from Daniel chapter 9 that the Messiah is coming and that the Jewish people's reception of that Messiah matters most. Daniel's age and condition and service all probably play a role and I'm going to suggest to you Daniel's reluctant decision to remain in the place of captivity. Daniel loves Jerusalem and he loves the Jewish people and he loves God's plan. But in his middle 80s, he might think at this point that he is better served, that he's serving the purposes of God by being a minister to and a support for Cyrus as the unfolding events are taking place. And here's what we know from Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 2. God convinces Cyrus that the Jews are to return. God convinces Cyrus, according to Ezra 1 and 2, to release the treasures of silver and the treasures of gold and all of the treasures that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar and so Cyrus is going to have a heavily financed expedition as the Jewish people leave Babylon and return to the promised land. And so it says in verse 2, in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. In those days is a reference back to the third year of Cyrus. And again, I want to draw your attention to that word mourning. It's a participle in the Hebrew language with the force of he was or I was in a continual state of mourning. This is grief. This is sadness. But it's the kind of sadness that weighs on you that's almost inexplicable. This is the kind of grief that comes after a profound loss. Like losing a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a son or a daughter. This is like losing a marriage or losing a job. There's this sense of grief and mourning. It's the Hebrew word which is used to describe deep Grief over the loss of a loved one in Genesis chapter 37, verse 34. It's used to describe deep grief over sin in Ezra chapter 10, verse 6. It's used to describe a catastrophe or a calamity in Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 12. What's interesting is we're not told why Daniel is in mourning. We understand when we talk with people and minister to people and interact with people who are sad, who want to be comforted. What happened? My, my husband died. My wife died. 
My child died. My marriage is over. I've lost my job. There's lots of reasons why people experience profound pain and grief and loss. Daniel may have known about the hardship and the opposition the Jews are about to face as they attempt their return home. Years later, Nehemiah will use the same word to describe the agony over the condition of the Jews who have returned to Jerusalem and the lack of progress that's been made in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. So if I were to venture a guess, I'm going to suggest to you that Daniel's mourning has something to do with the physical and the spiritual condition of the captives. And I'm also going to suggest to you that when you experience spiritual warfare, that almost invariably it's going to have to do with some crisis or catastrophe in your own life. Whether it's drug use or addiction or a marriage in trouble or or this concerted effort to destroy your life. These might all be things that prompt you to go, I think I need to pray for my mother, for my father, for my brothers and my sisters. I need to pray for this nation. I need to pray for the leadership. I need to pray for our church. I need to pray for our future. And I'm also going to suggest to you that I think the timing of the morning, the prayer, and the fasting have something to do with Daniel's motivation. Why? You may not see this, but... In chapter 4, there's the timing. Now on the 24th day of the first month. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Hebrew calendar, what's the first month? It's not January and it's not February. In the Hebrew calendar, remember it's a lunar calendar and the beginning of their calendar begins in the spring. And so Nisan and the 24th day of Nisan falls in that category where on the 14th of Nisan, that's Passover, and which lasts a day and then another day, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread takes place immediately afterwards. You can imagine Daniel as an observant Jew who understands, respects, and embraces all that that means. Remember, the temple is gone and he's not in his land. But it, can you celebrate the Passover when you're not in Jerusalem? And the answer is yes. And so, he says in verse 3, I ate no pleasant food. No meat or wine came into my mouth. His deep grief prompts prayer verse 12, fasting, verse 3. He's in the third week of a limited fast. In the Hebrew language, there's a conjunction between the two clauses. I ate no pleasant food, first clause. No meat or wine, second clause. The conjunction between the clause could be translated even. I ate no pleasant food, even no meat or wine, which indicates what was eliminated from his diet, no meat 
or wine. Remember at the beginning of Daniel's sojourn, as he enters as a young man into captivity, he purposes in his heart that he's not going to eat the king's food. He is going to keep kosher. He's not going to eat anything that could be defiled. And let me tell you what I mean by that. In the Babylonian culture, as well as the Persian culture, in the marketplaces, they would slaughter animals. They would offer them to their various gods and goddesses. They would invite the gods and goddesses to inhabit the meat. And in their culture and society, they believed that by eating that meat, they were also participating with the spirits. Imagine if you went to King Supers or Safeways after church or Albertsons, and you go, hey, that sausage says it's offered to, to bail. Let's pass on that. See, in our culture and society, we don't typically, you don't go to Tony's Meat Market and wonder if this has been offered to Satan. But he is living in a world where he is going to keep kosher. But I'm going to suggest to you that this is something more than just keeping kosher. It's a semi-fast. No meat, no wine. His intake is limited. But again, we're not told what that limitation was. Some scholars suggest vegetables. Some scholars suggest that Daniel at this point goes on a type of bread and water fast. We know that the fast is going to last 21 days. We also know that it's going to take place in a context where Jewish people normally don't fast. You don't fast at Passover or during the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But something has disturbed Daniel greatly. We're told that Daniel forgoes the usual regimen of personal hygiene. He says, nothing came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till the 21 days or the three whole weeks are fulfilled. The Jewish people along with ancient peoples would often anoint their bodies with oils and perfumes to soothe and refresh the skin. They would offer oils over the surface of their body to protect against the harsh heat in the desert climates. And so Daniel is ending this, and he might be at the river Hidekel, which is the Tigris, perhaps at this point to bathe and to relieve himself from the fast. We're not sure. Again, the biblical law required fasting only on the day of atonement, and then in order to mourn over sins in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. But in the Bible, we see several characters who embark and embrace a fast for different reasons. Invariably, they're spiritual reasons. Moses is going to go without food for 40 days and 40 nights, being ministered to by angelic beings. David, Esther, Elijah, Daniel, Paul, even Jesus. And so what was the purpose of fasting? Typically, the purpose of the fast was to deny yourself some physical comfort in order to embrace some spiritual discipline. So fasting isn't just simply going without food. It's the purposeful decision 
to decline to eat for the purpose of pursuing something spiritual. We starve the flesh in order to feed the spirit. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever participated in a fast for one day or two days or three days. In my own life, I've, I've done several short-term fasts and I've done only a couple of long-term fasts that lasted longer than seven days. My first seven-day fast was when I was trying to decide where I was going to go to school. The second fast happened when I was trying to decide who, if anyone, I was going to marry. My third was going to Al Albuquerque, then coming here. Usually we fast when there's a time of great transition, when we're wondering what God holds and the future requires. We decline to eat in order to pray. And so let's connect the dots. Daniel is in mourning. Daniel is fasting. He is mourning and in fasting, and the Passover has just been completed where observant Jews remember the bondage and the captivity of Egypt and God's glorious release. It says in verse 4, now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris. So Daniel again finds himself on the banks of the Tigris. We know the date, Nisan, first month, day 24, March, April, it's probably March 24 in the lunar calendar. Daniel's fast has begun three weeks earlier. The fast began on the third day of Nisan. That is, again, before the Passover. Passover celebrated on the 14th. The Passover followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasts seven days. Again, now we connect the dots. Daniel is in great grief. Daniel is fasting. It's the time of the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is passed. What are Daniel's concerns? Daniel is ultimately concerned about God, about God's glory, about God's plan, about the revelation of the future, about the coming of the Messiah. Could it be that one of the factors that prompts Daniel's prayer and fast, again, has to do with God's people and God's plan? And that's what I'm going to suggest to you that obviously you are going to be drawn in to the confrontation in the invisible realm when the plan of God and the purposes of God begin to manifest in your life and in the life of your family, not just for their salvation, it begins with their salvation and continues with this thing that we call life. The next thing you should ask the text is, where is Daniel? He's by the Tigris River. The, the Bible student should say, well, wait a minute. Why isn't he in Babylon? Good question. Why isn't he in Babylon? Why is he hundreds of miles? The headwaters of the Tigris is hundreds of miles to the north of Babylon, flows through Babylonia, empties into the Persian Gulf, there's probably a couple of reasons, perhaps. 
Some suggest that Daniel was away on important business. Others, and this is my preferred belief, Daniel has taken time aside to pray and to fast, to celebrate the feasts, and to ask the Lord how God wants to use him to fulfill the plan and the purpose that God has for him. And this tells us something else. That usually when you're in profound grief, deep mourning, great need, in order to actually pray in a pointed way, you're going to have to take time aside. You're going to have to set aside time to focus on prayer and intercession. And so now, with that said, we see the angel's description. Look what it says in verse 5. I lifted my eyes and looked. And behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Euphaz, or Uphaz. Okay, we're going to do a thought experiment. No, we're going to do a real experiment. Those of you who are able, I want you to open your eyes, look straight, and now look up. Lift your eyes. What is the direction you're staring? Up! What does that tell you about the text? I lifted my eyes and looked. What's the direction that Daniel is looking? He's looking up. He's by the banks of the Tigris River. This vision of this supernatural being, he seizes up. Now, again... The word behold, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, translates a Hebrew word, chene. It means, it's hard to translate. It combines the elements of wonder and surprise and excitement. Take wonder, surprise, excitement, bind them together, and you get this word. The word that came to my mind when I was looking at it, when I was a kid, when we would go to Disneyland, this is before there was a Disneyland in Florida, we would go to Orange County, and when you're driving down the freeway, the thing you're looking for is the Matterhorn. Once you see the Matterhorn, you know Disneyland is close, and so you keep your eyes, you keep looking up for the Matterhorn, and when you see it, you know Disneyland. You're almost there. Daniel looks up and he sees something and it literally is not just supernatural it's amazing look at what it says a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with the gold of Euphaz now this is no ordinary being even though he says it's a certain man it has sort of a, a human appearance this is a supernatural being. It's a heavenly being. And the being has the appearance because it's dressed in a garment mostly worn by priests. And whenever we see an angelic visitation, the Hebrew language translates that badim. They translate it here linen. It's hard to know if Daniel is thinking about the composition of the garment or the color of the garment, we're, we're left with that this is a white linen. So remember, this is, this, is a, a, this is garb that's unique to priests and kings. And of, of course, saints and angelic beings are described as being 
robed in white linen in Revelation 3, 5, in Revelation 6, 11, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. So over and over again, when we have this vision of either angelic beings or glorified saints, they seem to be wearing this garment. Bible teachers will often let their imaginations run wild in their description of the golden belt. Gleason Archer envisions chain links of gold or hinge panels of gold or gold thread embroidery. Baptists see a cowboy belt with a massive gold belt buckle. I just made that up. I'm just, I'm just funning with you now. They don't really believe that. I was just thinking about it when I was looking at it, and I was going, wow. I wonder if this is like a championship wrestling belt. <laughs> Whatever the belt is, it becomes a symbol, a picture of wealth, power, royalty, majesty. This is something that a judge or a king would wear. And in verse 6, look what it says. It's amazing. His body was like burl. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. This is an idiomatic expression in this language. Burnished bronze in color is a description of molten metal in a furnace. Imagine you take some sort of metal, you put it in a furnace, and you heat it up, and it starts to glow, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. The description is breathtaking. The word translated burl is a Hebrew word, tarsis. It's a gem, a mineralogical term. It's often translated chrysolite. It occurs several times in the Old Testament. It denotes some kind of precious stone, a gold-colored precious stone. The exact nature of the gem is unclear, but credible Bible scholars have translated this chrysolite or burl or topaz, a flashing stone which leaves you with the impression that it's faceted. Driver says it's the topaz of the moderns, which is a golden, golden brown. If you've ever seen a topaz, it's a translucent, opaque mineral that sort of glows gold. Pliny translates the word as a transparent stone with the refulgence of fire or golden fire, or some other gold, or excuse me, yellow colored stone. And so this heavenly being has a body glowing like a golden fire. The face of the being is like flashes of lightning, eyes like flaming torches, which speaks of some sort of penetrating gaze arms and legs like burnished bronze, that is, molten metal in a fire. And when he speaks, it's like the voice of a multitude. Imagine the roar of a crowd that makes hearing almost impossible. When the saints were playing in the playoff game against their opponent, they started to roar, and, and the, the quarterback would have to go and scream into the receiver's ear the play. 
So imagine, imagine, imagine you're hearing this sound like at Bronco Stadium where everyone is roaring so that nothing is heard. Who is this person? Who is this mysterious man in linen? Many Bible teachers compare this vision with the vision that John sees in the book of Revelation. If you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, John receives a vision of the resurrected Jesus. We know it's the resurrected Jesus from verse 11. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And then in verse 13, it says, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Glowing metal. Molten metal. And his voice as the sound of many waters. Imagine Victoria Falls or Niagara Falls. You hear the roaring or the, the, the roaring of waves that drowned out everything else. So as you can imagine, the majority of Bible scholars are deeply divided over the identity of this angelic being. Some say... It's a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. And they point to Revelation like I just did. Others argue, and their strongest argument, is if this being is the same being that he's going to talk about later on in verse 13. And let's skip to verse 13 real quick. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. They would say... It can't be Jesus because Jesus has all power against all demons and all demonic creatures, period. So the big question is, is the same being who's lifted, listed here the same being in verse 13? If this is in fact a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, again, it would be impossible for demons to withstand Jesus unless unless who's ever being spoken to in verse 13 is different from the image. Others see this as the interpreting angel, Gabriel. But this seems highly unlikely since when Daniel saw Gabriel earlier in, in chapter 9, verse 20, 21, he wasn't overcome with fear. Here, he has to be revived three times. So... Pre-incarnate Jesus, angelic creature, which is it? I'm going to leave that up to you. I know you're going, no, 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 tell me. I want to know. Find out. Think about it. We'll talk more as we continue our study. Look at the prophet's consolation. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great 
terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Now, I want you to understand what's going on in the text. Daniel's down by the river, the Tigris. He's not alone. Other human beings are present with him on the shores of the Tigris. The people who are with Daniel sense this overwhelming, terrifying, supernatural presence. And this overwhelming, terrifying, supernatural presence is sufficiently alarming that it causes each one of them to run for their lives. The Hebrew is emphatic. I saw. I, Daniel. I alone. In the New Testament, on the road to Damascus, we see something very similar, where Paul, as he is persecuting the church of Jesus Christ on his way to Damascus, receives a vision and a, a visitation, if you will, from the resurrected Jesus. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 7, it says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one in this circumstance with Daniel on the road to Damascus with Paul there were two types someone who sees the vision and most of the people who do not see the vision there is an invisible supernatural realm all around us you may not be able to see the supernatural angelic beings, but they're here. And when you pray for your mom, your dad, your loved one, your friends, when you get down on your knees, when you fold your hands, when you cry out to God for their salvation, for their restoration, for their healing, so that they will cooperate with the plan of God for their life, there are supernatural beings at work. And it says in verse 8, Therefore I was left alone. And when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. So Daniel is alone except for the angel. The presence of the heavenly being leaves Daniel drained of all strength. Now, you have to understand something. Spiritual warfare is not for the faint of heart. Spiritual warfare, when it's done right, takes a terrifying toll on your mind and on your body. And if you really are in the presence of supernatural creatures, it's exhausting. In verse 9, it says, Yet I heard the sound of the words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. The being speaks. Daniel hears the sound, and as he's hearing the sound, he slips into either a state of unconsciousness or an altered state of consciousness. This is a severe reaction. What are we to think? Is the heavenly being described in verses 4 through 6 the same as the being who's going to be described in verses 10 through 14? That's going to be something that you're going to have to look into, but we'll talk more about. 
Whatever the answer is, these supernatural forces, these cosmic beings in heavenly places are engaged in an intractable war and the battle that is being waged is for the souls, people, for the plan of God. When Abraham had a vision of the Lord in Genesis 17, 3, it says, he fell on his face. When Joshua saw the Lord, it says, he fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant in Joshua 5, 14? First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 16, it says, quote, David lifted his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven and in his hand a drawn sword stretched across Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces, unquote. Revelation 1.17, the apostle John, upon seeing Christ in his glory, fell on his face as if dead, Revelation 1.17. The testimony is consistent. That engagement with the supernatural sucks the life out of you. And here's Daniel in the thick of things. Daniel's ministry of prophecy, the practice of prayer, intercession, is now going to experience opposition. And so... What are we to think about? Well, what are the basics of spiritual warfare? Let me be blunt and clear. According to the, battle, the Bible, the battle is real. There is a real war. And you are on one side of the battle or the other side of the battle. So I want you to think about it. There is a battle. It is real. The principles are spirit beings. The conflict is between good and evil. You are on the side of the conflict, one side or the other. How do we know? Remember? If you support the plan of God or you oppose the plan of God, it becomes an immediate understanding of which side you're on. The mission of God includes the salvation of human beings. The Bible says it's God's will that none perish, but all have everlasting life. The Bible says that he's drawing people, calling on people to come to Christ, to repent of their sin, to turn from their sin, to turn to the Savior. And once you've accepted the Savior and you receive Jesus as your Savior... You begin to understand the gifts and the callings that you've been given and the place that you've been given and where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing. And so, invisible creatures are at work opposing the plan or supporting the plan. The schemes of Satan include but aren't limited to oppose the plan of God 
make human beings ignorant of God's will, make human beings impatient with God's will, make human beings act independent of God's will, satanic creatures target the mind and the body and the will and the heart and the conscience and their principal weapons are lies and suffering and pride and accusation. And so the Christian is also given weapons. Paul writes that our warfare is not carnal. It's spiritual. And the weapons that we've been given are to be able to engage in the fight in a way that's going to result in the opposition being thwarted. Each and every one of you, without exception, is on one side of the plan or the other. Welcome to the war. This is just the introduction. The rest of the book is going to be devoted to all that's left. You guys ready for this? Then I'm going to pray for you, Heavenly Father. I pray for these men and women. Lord, I pray for their children and their children's children. Lord, we pray for our country and its leaders. Lord, we pray for our community and our church and our church families. Lord, we know that there's a war being waged and families are being divided, torn apart. And Lord, we pray. We pray that we would be men and women who aren't just feeling guilty about sin, but that we would begin to mourn and feel sadness and a profound grief for everything that we know that our nation needs, everything that we know that our church needs, everything that we know that our family needs, everything that we know that we need in order to confront the enemy and pull down the strongholds, in order for our hearts to heal. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray that you would make us aware that we would become sensitive to and submissive to your Holy Spirit. Lord, you've given us your word, not as for toys to play with or simply tools to work with, but weapons to fight with. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in this task. In Jesus' name, amen.